Shrink Wrap Radio, number 826. Physicist Susie Sheehy, Ph.D., on how physics is really done. And now it's time for Dr. Dave and Shrink Wrap Radio. You're on the couch again with Dr. Dave. And Shrink Wrap Radio is playing on again. Yeah. It's all in your head. It's all in your head. Shrink Wrap Radio. Shrink Wrap Radio. Shrink Wrap Radio. Shrink Wrap Radio. It's Shrink Wrap Radio. All the psychology you need to know and just enough to make it dangerous, it's all in your head. And now here's your host, Dr. Dave. My guest today is Australian physicist Susie Sheehy, PhD, author of The Matter of Everything. We'll be discussing her book and work. Now, here's the interview. Dr. Susie Sheehy, welcome to Shrink Wrap Radio. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Well, I'm really excited to have you here. As a matter of fact, we're going to be discussing your 2023 book, The Matter of Everything, How Curiosity, Physics, and Improbable Experiments Change the World. And uh, that's quite a quite a mouthful of a, of a subtitle, yeah. at least. But, it's, uh, it's a long subtitle, yeah, but I think it, it uh, accurately describes the, the story in the book, yeah. Yeah, it really does. And I understand this is your first book. How did you come to write it? It is, yeah. Um, I actually had been chatting to a literary agent for a number of years um, because I did a lot of public speaking, especially when I was working in the UK. Um, and I used to tell all these stories about my field, which is the field of particle accelerators, and the many applications and many different ways that they're used in our society from cancer treatment to making the chips inside your computer. And, and you know, this, this literary agent came and chatted to me one day and it took about five years from that point for me to actually decide I wanted to write a book. Um, but that's kind of how it happened is, is uh, yeah, I was lucky enough that someone came to me and then developing the idea uh, took took a little while, I think, to find the right storyline. And every author tells me the same thing, that finding that that narrative and that overarching story is is really where the work is at. So that took about five years. Yeah, I'm not surprised because you cover so much ground in that book, in this book, I should say. And um, you're an experimental physicist. And I'm a psychologist, of course, and you were asking me just before we got on, well, what's your take going to be on this? Well, you, mostly we're going to stick to your book, but every now and then I'll come from a psychologist-type place. And so I, the way I'm, a, a, I'm quite familiar with the idea of an experimental psychologist, and mm. I've interviewed many experimental psychologists on this show, it never occurred to me that there's such a thing as an experimental physicist. This was absolute news to me, but of course it makes sense, particularly as I dig into your book. 
Um, but tell us a bit about an experimental physicist, what it is to be one. Yeah, so I think I think most of the physicists we come across in popular culture are what I would call a theoretical physicist, right? Someone who is yeah. viewed to be there, you know, like Einstein, you know, there with a piece of paper and a pen, or nowadays a, a supercomputer, uh, developing theories about the world that we live in. Um, but you really have to think, okay, but who goes out there and verifies whether those theories are true, and who creates? Uh, you know, who goes out there and experiments uh, with the real world in such a way that we have data around which to build new theories uh, that don't match our background. So the experimental physicist's job really is to go out there and interact with our world, often on tiny microscopic scales that we can't see with our own you know, eyes or, or touch with our, with our hands, and somehow establish truths about our universe that are true. I mean, the wonderful thing about physics uh, is that if you do the experiments in the right way, you can be basically sure that that applies not just in our local area, but you know whether you're here or in Tanzania or uh, you know or on the moon um, or, or in some far reaches of the universe. And being able to develop uh, instruments and equipment and strategies to tease out information about our universe um, using that that method is really the art of the experimental physicist. Now, a lot of people think that, you know, the theorists do the clever work and then the experimentalists just go out there and test their clever ideas. In my view, as an experimental physicist, that's not true at all, right? We're really going in there and having to keep our minds open to how the universe works, regardless of the biases that we come in with about whether or not one theory happens to look more compelling or often people talk about the beauty of a theoretical idea or the beauty of mathematics, and we're very biased towards those beautiful ideas. But as an experimenter, right. we have to be open to the idea that the universe might just work in ways that we find theoretically ugly. You know? yeah. um, <laughs> We've been so lucky, evidently, because uh, mostly it's turned out to be beautiful. <laughs> exactly. And the, I guess the tools we have at our disposal as an experimenter as well, we, we obviously use theory and we use mathematics a lot. I think in physics that's a given um, that you have to have that background. But instead of developing new theoretical ideas, we also have to have the background of being able to actually design and make instruments and analyze data. So we might have skill sets that cross from, uh, you know, engineering design of precision components to vacuum systems to detectors to superconductors. So it's quite a wide skill set that you have to bring into the lab to, to do this. That's one of the things that really impressed me was your skill set. Uh, that I think includes things like welding, uh, yeah. electronics, putting, you know, you put together the equipment for these elaborate uh, uh, devices that are going to test out major theories. And I was really impressed by that. And actually, part of my own background is as a young person, I was uh, an amateur radio operator or ham radio operator. I don't know if you've ever run across that. It's a sort of a dying of hobby. A sort of a dying hobby in some ways. Before the internet, believe me, it was very magical to be able to talk to somebody across town or across the world. Mm. And so, so as a 12, 13, 14-year-old person, that was, for me, was on the 
the uh, the frontier, and and I took an adult night class on electronics along with some buddies, and learned a lot about electronics, and so. I worked a lot with vacuum tubes, and it's interesting mm. that your book sort of begins with with cathode with vacuum tubes and cathode ray tubes, and really gets the ball rolling. And you're able to build everything up from there, all the way to uh, modern imaging <laughs> equipment, and, and right. make it make it all intelligible. So I'm so impressed by the skill set that you have to have. And, um, you know, I'm also struck by, um, by, I wanted to ask you somehow in a way that's not, offens- not offensive about girls in physics. Oh, yeah, let's get into that. Yeah, yeah, this was a whole, this came out as a whole theme of writing this book. And obviously a theme in my own uh, life and experience of being a physicist. So yeah, please, like, ask away. Well, and then looking at you, you look like you're about 12 years old, which is, uh, <laughs> and maybe you are, I don't know. Compliment. Yeah. Maybe, maybe maybe Zoom has a good filter on it today. <laughs> yeah. No, 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 significantly older than that. Um, yeah, I so, gather not because so, you um, said uh, five years you worked on the book. So you, that's got to be 12 yeah. plus five is already <laughs> 17, you know. <laughs> at least 17. You know, I can almost drink, drink alcohol in your country. Um, <laughs> no. No, no, no. Um, so I think one of the one of the things that really came out in writing this book for me, uh, because today we still have this sort of lack of women, especially in in the physical sciences and in engineering. Yeah. And there's really in I'd say in most fields like that, it's it's roughly twenty percent. In my own like little subfield, designing these big machines, these particle accelerators that we use, um, it's closer to ten or fifteen percent. And the further you go up in seniority. The lower that that percentage uh, drops, unfortunately. So the the number of full professors in my field, um, it, who are women, uh, is pretty pretty low. Basically, um, I'm now associate professor, so soon I'll be there. But yeah. <laughs> we'll I have there. no but, doubt but that you'll the, be there. Yeah, uh, that's that's very kind. Um, so one of the things that happened when I was researching this book, and it happened incidentally, it wasn't planned, was that I was going through these stories. But, you know, so I start, as you say, back in about 1896 with these really handcrafted experiments, you know, making um, glass, these glass vacuum tubes with which to do experiments. And at that time, there's almost no women working in the labs, or at least I thought there was no women at all other than perhaps Marie Curie who we've heard about. Yeah. And what surprised me was that stories of women kept coming up in my research process. So there was Harriet Brooks, who was the first graduate student of Ernest Rutherford when he was working in Montreal. And she did some really important work toward um, understanding uh, radioactive decay and radiation um, and under- understanding uh, an element called thorium and how that decayed. And her experiments were underpinning to our our understanding of this the concept of radioactive half-life so that is the the decay away in a certain period of time of sort of half of half of a, a radioactive element um and she has a really interesting story because at that time if you uh got married you would have to quit your job and there there were women's colleges uh you know in montreal at the time and around the world there were places that would admit admit sorry admit women for higher education. It was pretty rare for them to do physics, but that's what she wanted to do. And 
she got engaged towards the end of her sort of master's level degree and uh, she was told that she would have to quit her job and quit physics if she got married by the college that she was working at. And she caused a right fuss, right? Like she she really arced up at like this is this is not fair. Um and they they stood by it. And so she actually broke off the engagement and refused to get married in order to continue working in physics. And then That's her devotion. story goes she, <laughs> to the discipline. Isn't it? Isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And it's and it's not like that was easy for her because she came from a family of like eight children and it was not a well, wealthy family. And, you know, she'd subsisted off scholarships because her family couldn't afford to pay for her to go to university. So she just gave up, you know, financial stability in order to pursue physics. So this passion of women to study this, this subject has been there all along and their contributions have been there all along. And I was really pleased to sort of resonate with with that experience sure. back through history, not just with someone like Marie Curie, who we've heard of, but with other physicists as well, who whom are, are less well known, including um, there's a, a couple of women in about the 1940s, one called Marietta Blau, who's working in Vienna. Um, another woman, uh, Biba Chowdhury, is working in India at the time. And they're making incredible discoveries and they're making all their equipment themselves. And I just sort of thought this, this idea that women, you know, there's still some people who hold the idea that women are not somehow not interested in physics, which all the studies prove is not true. They're interested. They just get pushed out culturally yeah. um, of, of the field as they as they progress. Um, and I think this was very validating for me to know that that interest has always been there and it has been more the societal factors and the cultural biases that have always prevented women from from working in this field. We've obviously come a long way now. Women don't have to quit their jobs when they get married, although in some places that held up until the 1960s and 1970s, believe it or not. Yeah, I, <laughs> um, I can believe it. But there it, are yeah. still pressures. Yeah, there are still pressures even, you know, even around that aspect and around child raising and around the share, sharing of household labour. Of course, there's those pressures in someone's life. But even just this this sort of bias that we hold that says, you know, think of a physicist right and usually a male male image right. comes to our mind sure. and until we can shift that i think we're going to continue to have this this lack of women but it was it was really heartening to me to know that these women have always been there yeah yeah and in a way you you've kind of uh tipped the, your hand for our audience we haven't described the structure of the book but the book really consists of uh of a narrative of vignettes of the development of physics and um, through a period of mostly around, what, 150 years? Uh, around most that, of it yep. is, is within that time frame. Some of it goes further back. And um, and then, as you point out, it happens that there are a bunch of women who turn up in this story. But it's, it's an astounding book because you're taking us through this history of the development of physics, but in the process, we are learning willy-nilly a bunch of really <laughs> important things about physics, you know, which we may not have majored in or may not have learned that much about on the way. Um, one of the things that really blew my mind and I'm still wrestling with is, and it comes up early in the book, is, and I hope I have this right, that matter consists of an up quark, a down quark, 
and an electron. And that's what matter is throughout the universe, throughout the galaxy. Am I exaggerating or is that it? Is no, that no, saying? I think as far as as far as we as far as the matter that we interact with, um, in terms of the sort of matter particles or the particles that sort of have mass within that, yeah, it's it's literally two two types of quarks, the up and down, and those combine together to make the protons and neutrons. Um, and then the electrons, which travel sort of around those in in uh, in some sense. Uh, it's not quite that way quantum mechanically, but sort of travel around those in clouds on the outside of the atoms. So if we think about atoms as made up just of protons, neutrons, and electrons, it's just up quarks, down quarks, and electrons, and all you know all the matter that we interact with on our day to day basis. Every different material and structure that we experience in our lives is just this just these uh three different types of particles and then if you add light into that equation which you know light matter have sort of some equivalence um but if you sort of add light into that picture then that's really everything in our everyday experience from radio waves to getting sunburnt to you know <laughs> to the way the internet works um and then as as you say as we look out into the universe most of what we're interacting with still is uh, are those forms of um, of matter that we understand very well because we can study atoms and things here on Earth and we can study light here on Earth. And one of the most astonishing things that came through the story of discovery is almost our bias around focusing on that as our definition of matter because it turns out there's lots of other different types of particles. There's different generations to those quarks that play no role in our atoms. There's different generations to the electron, heavier versions called the muon and the tau that were discovered over you know, decades. Um, and, and they play no everyday role in our version of matter either. So I almost got to this point as well where the book is called The Matter of Everything. And you sort of go, well, uh, that matter, the matter of what we would call everything, is only a small subset of the matter or the particles or the, you know, this fundamental constituents of what I would call our, our whole universe. And uh, not not to give the story away because I think most people, you know, can pick the, pick, pick this uh, fact up in, in most science magazines. But, you know, you get to today's, today's view of the universe over this incredible journey of 120 years of discovery and we still look out into the universe and we can see that there are other forms of what I will call matter in inverted inverted commas, um, such as dark matter or even the much more mysterious dark energy. And when we look at all of that, we go, oh, we think that all this stuff we've discovered, even if we add up all the all the atoms and all these uh, so your muons and all these other things, that might only make up about 4% of the mass energy content of our universe. So there is much, much more out there to discover and that's that's the focus of physicists at the moment and it's quite interesting to me that you know all of chemistry all of biology all of every other science can only focus on you know this basic form of matter the electrons and up and down quark yeah. and yet to a particle physicist it's like whoa well hang on there's like all this other stuff out there it just doesn't form the everyday atoms that we know and rely on it's almost uh it, it, it's almost strange that the universe is actually so complex in how you know in in how many different things there are around us every day, and and also just the idea that there's particles raining down on us from space all the time uh, yeah. in the form of cosmic rays. 
there's these tiny ghost-like neutrinos, billions and billions of them are traveling through us every minute. We can't tell at all. They're more they're more common than photons, huh. and they, they're Get more common than, than light. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. A, yeah, yeah, you're getting the neutrinos, you're watching yeah, yeah. neutrinos. Yeah. Now, constant neutrino bath your entire life, that's it. Um, and, and I remember when I was younger and I sort of came across some of these ideas and it just blew my mind, you know. I sort of thought this... This world we live in is so much, there's so much to it beyond what we can see and what we can experience with our own senses. Well, I love uh, also in the introduction, you talk about um, an experience that you had in the Australian outback um, of being out under, I guess, sleeping outdoors and and sleeping beneath the sky and looking up at at the stars and you had what sounded like a, a kind of transcendent experience that mm. seemed to uh, uh, magnetize the rest of your life, <laughs> to give your life uh, this direction that you've taken. Yeah, it's it's really a lot of people who have the experience of stargazing for the first time in a properly dark site, I think, have a similar transformative effect because if you lie there long enough and this is what happened to me uh, especially in the southern hemisphere you're looking into the center of the milky way galaxy and so as you lie there and your eyes adjust you know the brightness of the star you know this band of stars across the center of the the sky just appears to get brighter and brighter until you sort of think how how are we not usually cognizant of the fact that we are on a planet sort of two-thirds of the way out on this spiral arm galaxy. And and I'm looking at looking toward the center of this galaxy. And we now know, because we've now measured, since I since I started writing the book, this has been measured, that there is a black hole at the center of our galaxy. And we've, you know, it's now been imaged, of course, this famous image came out of this sort of fuzzy, fuzzy looking blob with a hole in the center, um, at, at the center of our galaxy, which is the, the supermassive black hole at the center of our galaxy. And I got this, I just had this impression as well if you lay there long enough that of course that that appears to move across the sky but you go well no hang on given this new perspective that I have and it's kind of like the overview effect right that uh, that astronauts are said to get when they go up and they see the earth from a distance this sort of largening largening of their perspective that's how I felt but lying on the earth looking in the opposite direction yeah where suddenly I can feel that I'm this tiny thing on the earth and the Earth is rotating through and moving through this thing we call the universe, and that uh, not only is that you know the universe as an entity incredibly complex, but that somehow it has led to me and to me asking questions and wanting to understand it. And it's just this, almost this closed loop uh, effect where you go, "Wow, isn't that isn't that incredible?" <laughs> yeah, it certainly is, and it's hard to hang on to that. Um... But I love the impact that it's had on on you and your life, and and uh, the way that you're contributing to our knowledge of what's going on. Uh, you know, in coming from psychology, in many people's minds, physics is the gold standard of of real science. And so, being involved in a quote social science, there was mm. always people talked about physics envy. 
Uh, yeah. And I think <laughs> I've heard that in in economics as well. That economics has physics envy. Yeah. yeah. Right. Right. Physics envy. So. Uh, uh, so that's certainly one thing that comes up when we think about about physics. And uh, another a kind of pet peeve of mine that relates to uh, uh, quantum mechanics and so on is that people write psychological books that are um, that are trying to explain things like you know psychic phenomena and other things that we don't mm -hmm. understand. And, and because there's so much that we don't understand, they kind of fall back on that. That's one version of it. Uh, and say, well, we don't know everything, so it could be this and this and this. And then the other mm -hmm. thing is that they will, people who are not physics will try to use quantum physics to explain various psychological phenomena. I'm just very distrustful of that. Yeah. One moment. <clears throat> Sorry. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a bit of a bugbear of mine, or at least at first when I studied physics, and I know a lot of the professors who I studied under this kind of misuse of the language and concepts of physics to apply to domains where, uh, you know, that are physically much larger than a scale on which the ideas of quantum mechanics are going to make a jot of difference, right? I know a lot of people get annoyed by that. I'm I'm at a point in my career where I'm really curious about the way that we do that. So I'm first of all curious that there are many things that people observe that, that we can't explain. I think that's fascinating. Um, I, you know, withholding some effects which are just almost driven by our cognitive biases because we like to see <laughs> we like to see things and tell stories in our heads about yeah. um, about what it is that we're seeing. Uh, but I think one of the things that I became fascinated in, even in writing the book and thinking a little more specifically about the language that we use in physics is the way that people pick up and use the language and concepts in a metaphorical sense. And I think right. I'm totally happy for people to use ideas from quantum mechanics, for example, in a metaphorical sense. I actually think that's really valuable. I think, you know, artists and, and creators and poets can use those ideas to sort of describe things that are otherwise very difficult to describe. Um, and we do that in all sorts of other ways as well. Think about words like pressure energy, stress, all of these have very technical meanings in physics, and yet we can use them in a broad sense um, mm. to describe other things that we experience in our life. I think where you get a problem, yeah, is where someone is effectively trying to make money off misapplying uh, oh. an idea from quantum mechanics and sort of saying, oh, well, if we just describe this, uh, I don't know, parapsychological phenomenon as quantum, then that explains everything. Yeah. And as a physicist, I'm sort of looking at it going, okay, but you haven't actually explained how that concept is supposed to work. And I can do I can do a calculation on the back of a napkin that shows you that it's not going to work. <laughs> like, <laughs> or like that the idea is not going to work. At the same time, sometimes these things inspire interesting research areas. So one of the things I read a bit about and would like to read more on is some of the research that's happening in, um, say, the field that is now called quantum biology. So the idea that um, some of the effects from quantum mechanics and uh, really quantum mechanics is a very broad brush, right? Because if you think of an effect like fluorescence or phosphorescence, actually those phenomena only exist because of quantum mechanics um, and they can be described quantum mechanically. So, you know, if you go out into nature, you think, well, there are, there are jellyfish that are luminescent, um, hmm. 
you know, there's natural phosphorescence of of things under the ocean. And you sort of think, well, is that a quantum biological phenomenon? Question mark. Uh, how do we apply, you know, how do we apply the phrase quantum in a in a realistic way? And it's a little bit of a, a gray area, but there are indications of extreme levels of sensitivity in nature. Think about how sensitive the human nose is, for example, or the human ear, <clears throat> and then try and create a sensor that re- recreates that. And it's really, really difficult. Um, and sometimes our sensitivity to phenomena, you know, is is really finely tuned. And that's that's pretty that's a pretty incredible thing that I I I mean, I'm not an expert in this. I'm not a quantum biologist, right? But I, as I understand it, there are there are, for example, the the tracking of birds in their migration, uh, there have been particular birds that have been found to be incredibly sensitive to for ex- to the Earth's magnetic field, such that they can navigate by following slight variations in the Earth's magnetic right. field. Um, right. And and that the only way to describe those very small uh, effects, um, you know, if you were to write down a theory to describe exactly what's happening in the bird's body or brain or whatever is happening, that you need quantum mechanics to actually describe that. So there are some really interesting areas of research happening uh, where we can take quantum mechanics and apply it to larger scale phenomena and start to understand them. But we are nowhere near the level of trying to understand how that applies to psychology, right? And I very much doubt that psychology or the concepts that we currently have in psychology can just be directly translated and put in this, oh, some kind of superposition concept or some kind of, uh, you know, other than in a metaphorical sense. Yeah, yeah. Which I think has value. I think has value, but we do need to delineate between actual science and scientific studies R- right. um, and versus metaphor. Yeah. Right. And I'm impressed by how broad minded you're willing to be, <laughs> how much space you will allow people to do that. Um, uh, you, Not you every physicist a, <laughs> would take that view. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> You you have a uh, but never say of, never right never say never like like right. people you know there's there's many examples in my book of people uh, of people not being able to believe things uh, even when they had the evidence in front of them so I also I guess my own interest in in the sort of way that we become biased and the way that we uh, come to think of things as factual has led me to go well you know I'm not going to say that the things these people are saying have scientific basis but one day someone might do a study that shows that there's some some scientific basis to some version of it and I'm not going to stand here and say 100% that that's not true because I wouldn't be a scientist otherwise right I don't have the evidence yeah. to show that it's absolutely not true so since I'm, since I'm verging, in, verging into the, the realm of, of things like intuition I have to say I'm impressed when I look at, at the the progress of science and so on. What we were taught in experimental psychology in graduate school was that the model of science is is that a scientist has a hypothesis which they objectively test, and if it doesn't turn out the way that they thought it was supposed to, that they will move on. They abandon that hypothesis and they move on. It seems to me that real people in real life behave quite differently than that. They get this intuition. Mm. I think this is how it goes. And they will stick to it over and over and over again for years, 
trying to come up with a way, you know, with a, a demonstration that will prove their idea. And in many cases, after years and years of struggle, they finally create the device or the theory that gives it, you know, some, some substance. So I think that's a very interesting phenomenon. I, I agree with you. It's, um, yeah, I, I think there's an important factor there, though, and, and one that people sometimes miss when they go, oh, you know, anyone could come up with a theory that, uh, that might just turn out to be true if they persist hard enough. Um, one of the things I talk about a little bit in the book is, is the value of a, a prepared mind and the ability to ask good questions. Yeah. And this is why in a field like I'm sure like psychology but also like physics, you go through many years of training and you learn about what has gone before and you recreate the experiments of the past so that you sort of understand uh, the process of developing ideas in physics as a whole. Um, and then I think that's how in physics we talk about developing that physical intuition and this is also where you get a slight uh, divergence in the training in physics between the, the more theoretical and the more experimental side is some people might just have a real knack for being able to look at um, uh, equations and sort of go, oh, I think if I do this and this, then it will turn out in this way um, or if I construct it in this way. And, and years of experience of doing many calculations will sort of give them this ability to 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 frame it in in that way, um, whereas in the lab, you know, in experimental physics, you might more have a hunch or a um, a learned intuition. I think is probably the best word for it uh, to say. I don't think that thing I'm seeing on the oscilloscope is real. You know, I think that's noise somehow in my system. And then, you know, questioning everything uh, and going through and proving every single step to yourself so that you understand it deeply enough, you can say yes. Now I've convinced myself. That little blip that I'm seeing is real, and now I have to consider what physics might produce that blip in my system. Um, I think the other thing that particle physics has done, because it re relies so heavily on like really difficult st statistical methods, right? You know, it's pulling out. I mean, needle in a haystack would be easy compared to a Higgs boson discovery, right? <laughs> like, it's you're looking for tiny, tiny effects in large, large amounts of data. And so they've developed not just the statistical methods to tell them whether or not that's a real effect, but also systems to unbias themselves from what they believe should be in the data. So they have a process called blinding the data uh, in the big particle physics experiments now, where they, they collect all the data from the experiments and keep it hidden even to themselves. And they develop all their analysis tools so that, you know, mm. the tools that are designed to pull out these little peaks or these little blips um, yeah. and they run that either on simulated like fake data or they run it on some very small subset of the, the real data. And so when they go through this process at the end of unblinding, then they can be sure that they haven't just designed that analysis in order to pull out something which is fake. That said, uh, you know, in the stories, there's I tell a number of stories of how some of those uh, blips in, in earlier days looked like they were real. And then when you collected more data, they went away again. And that's why they've developed these incredibly sophisticated ways of trying not to fool themselves into thinking that something is true or real about the universe. Um, when, when in fact the, you know, the data is just noise in the data. Um, 
And so we also have then this incredibly high standard of evidence that we call this five sigma standard of evidence. And if you applied that five sigma, uh, I can't remember the exact percentage, but it's like there's a one in 99.9999999 chance that the phenomenon is not explained by your theory, right? Uh, or, or that your your hypothesis is, is sort of wrong. Um, yeah, I've not explained like, that well, but there, there's a very high standard of evidence. In psychology, there. we talk about standard deviations. So I think right. the five sigma that you're talking about would be five yes. standard deviations five, out. Rough, it's roughly yeah. equivalent to that, yeah. yeah. And, and my understanding is if you applied that standard of evidence to almost any other field of science, all the all the results would disappear. <laughs> um, and so we're lucky in physics in that way that we can design our experiments and re repeat the experiments again and again and again to gather enough data to be really sure of these very, very tiny phenomenon. And that's one of the reasons why we get these big experiments and these, you know, interesting tiny effects. But in our field, we've learned that those tiny effects are sometimes where the interesting, interesting science is. I'm always intrigued by the seeming paradox of the fact that I'm saying the fact, it may not be a fact, <laughs> my notion that mathematics is a, um, is a rational process based on reasoning, human reasoning, outside of physical evidence, and yet it becomes the gold standard for evaluating physical phenomena. Seems to me there's a paradox there. That's a really that's a really wise question, I have to say. Thank, that's thank uh you. that's a big that's a big question. Um so one of the things that I think uh is most amazing to most of my theoretical physics colleagues is the idea that the universe can be described by mathematics at all. Right? Yeah. What like why is it that these number structures and things that we've developed um, over you know centuries, millennia uh, are actually able to describe accurately the workings of the universe? Um, that uh, that's in the realm of philosophy. That's that's really I'm fascinated by that as well. The fact that our universe can be described mathematically. I'm sure you know there are fields in which so far we haven't been able to do the same thing. Uh, so, for example, a lot of biology, a lot of um, even more complex areas of chemistry, thus far we haven't been able to fully describe them using mathematics, or at least certainly not in the um, that sort of very predictive mathematical sense. And that's where you get um, new areas of mathematics emerging that are more statistical in nature or that can describe more chaotic or com complex processes. Um, and then, you know, again, you sort of regain this ability to describe systems in terms of mathematics. And to me, that's, it is one of the most wonderful things about the way we work in science is that this stuff can be described by mathematics. Why that's the case, uh, you know, it seems to be, uh, almost sheer coincidence that that is the case in, in, in most of the time. And yet the only, the only way in our society that we can make predictions and understand things to the level of detail where we can use it for our own benefit, for the benefit of society to build things or make things or, um, you know, make our lives 
easier or better or longer is to use this process. Um, I, I think there's it's much more satisfying anyway to a physicist anyway to be able to write down an equation to describe something than it is to say, okay, well, I did this experiment, I took this data set, I have no idea how to interpret it fundamentally, but you know, here's the here's the plot, here's the data. Yeah. Um, and I think that the task, you know, the task and the interaction between experimentalists and, and theoretical scientists in I would say any field is this ability to work together to go, okay, well, how how do we interpret this data? What does this mean in the context of our models or our theories? Um, and how do we put that together to actually gain insight about the actual world around us? Um, and I think this is also why I've ended up in a very open-minded sense about how we use words in physics, how we use concepts of physics, because I can see all the way from this spectrum of like the very detailed mathematical models being exact and trying to predict, uh, you know, like we can predict the evolution of our solar system a long way out in the future. And we're going to get it almost exactly correct because we understand that so well. Um, and yet, you know, you probably can't predict what your slightly chaotic friend is going to do tomorrow. Right. So, right. <laughs> so I think, <laughs> so, so it's like, okay, we have to, hold space for these, um, you know, the the things which we can describe to this level of detail, which are very useful to us and, you know, ha have been the foundation of uh, things like modern medicine, you know, the way we travel, the way we work, the way we interact with each other. All these things are actually underpinned by these fundamental ideas that science has given us. But we also can't forget that on the other end of the spectrum, we're humans and that we usually can't even though it is probably the goal I, I don't define the goals of psychology to a psychologist but um you know we can't almost be as predictable as that we're never going to be and I think somewhere in the middle there's space for creativity and uh you know acceptance and just going yeah you know what we're flawed human beings and yet look at we, what we can do and what we can be and what we can create and yeah. the ways in which yeah. we can can thrive together um so I know a lot of physicists who are sort of very much of the opinion that if you can't pin it down with mathematics and if it doesn't have this fundamental underpinning and basically if it's not physics, then it's not valuable. <laughs> That's yeah. completely wrong in my view because it completely negates yeah. the human element of who we are and how we live and and even who we are when we do science and the questions that we ask and why is it that you decided in your career to ask questions about psychology and I decided to ask questions about fundamental particle physics. Yeah, you know, I subscribe to the idea of uh, appropriate levels of, of um, to come in at appropriate levels for research. So in other words, mm -hmm. on the one hand, everything is based on, on atoms and subparticles and light and so on. But to understand human behavior, even though it's based on all of that stuff, it's, it's not the best way to approach it. It's, it's, right. it's going way down too far on the scale, right? And so that's why social sciences and biological sciences and other things, they also find important truths, but it's a, a whole different level of an analysis. That's, exactly, uh, on, a yeah, different, that, on a different scale. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but I want to I want to uh, jump jump over a whole bunch of your book and go to your work, which is very fascinating. 
Uh, and so tell tell us about about what you you say you design. Um, well, you say it in, in your own words. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What you're creating. So, um, yeah. So when people when people ask me what I do nowadays, I say I design particle accelerators, and yeah. most of the time now I'm designing those for medical applications or for other societal applications. So let me rewind on that a bit. So in the book, we go through uh, this journey of people developing the first machines that could take subatomic particles and make them go faster, effectively, for useful means. Um, And in the book, originally, this is trying to split the atom for the first time, which happened in around 1932, using one of the first particle accelerators in in Cambridge in in, uh, the UK. And since then, this technology of taking, you know, sort of ripping apart, um, ripping apart atoms to take protons or to take electrons, and then pushing them up to high energy, controlling them, um, and then using them to do something. Being able to design a system that does that uh, is sort of the art of uh, particle accelerators or accelerator physics, which is my sort of subfield. And almost immediately on the discovery of these different phenomena in radiation. So x-rays were discovered in 1896 and within a year they were being used to take images on battlefields and in hospitals to try and help find shrapnel and things in in people's bodies to try and save lives. So people tend to take the discoveries of physics and the the tools of physics and apply them (coughs) in and apply them in areas which may not have been obvious to the discoverer. And this is also true of particle accelerators. So as we've been able to make machines which are better controlled, higher energy, cheaper, more reliable, ones that could produce different beams or beams of greater intensity or smaller size, um, lots and lots of uses have come up for them. So now there's about 50,000, five zero, 50,000 particle accelerators in the world. Most people oh are pretty goodness. surprised by that. Yeah, Most because of are- I... Th- I think of a particle accelerator as uh, something like like CERN or yeah. uh, you know or uh, you know there's miles and miles a big circle of uh, thing that you know right uh, right and, and if and, if there were fifty thousand of those we'd know about it right <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but that's right. just the big ones right like they're they're just the ones used by physicists but the ones used by physicists are like a fraction of a percent of all the ones. Um, on earth. And so actually what's happened is that as these technologies have developed, they've found many other uses in society. So one of the main ones is using small linear accelerators. So that's, you know, sort of a a small meter long accelerator that's sort of in a straight line um, to accelerate electrons and then turn those into X-rays just by hitting a metal target with the electrons. And then uh, using those shaping the x-rays to actually target uh, tumors and cancers and areas inside people's bodies. Yeah. And this is the, this is the process called radiotherapy. And in, in your country or, or you know, my, my two countries, the UK or Australia, about half of all uh, cancer patients are treated using radiotherapy. Um, and yet most people have no idea that inside that is a little particle accelerator that um, benefited from developments in radar in World War II, benefited from you know the particle physics developments that happened at Stanford that later um, led to discovering the, the quarks, the fundamental constituents of protons and neutrons. 
And, and there's this wonderful story about doing that. But nowadays, we're able to actually develop technologies more specifically for those applications so that they can, uh, so that they can, sorry, I just had a message on this side. Um, sorry, we can develop the technologies more specifically for the application so that we can make them smaller, we can make them more reliable, um, you know, we can target tumours and cancers a lot better than we could. And we develop those now in collaboration with oncologists and medical physicists and people who work with with patients. And this is something that when I finished my undergraduate degree and I went to do my PhD and I sort of found out about this in a way, I found that the tools the tools of fundamental physics were being used already to treat cancer in hospitals. And I sort of thought, oh, wow, that's amazing. That brings together my sort of big picture fundamental physics, long-term view of discovery with, you know, this sort of desire I had also to, to do something that had an impact more immediately in the world. And so eventually I've worked in a number of different research areas, but eventually I came back to starting a new lab when I moved back to Australia a few years ago to focus on these smaller types of accelerators, um, some of which are used in 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 hospitals in just like small meter-long ones, some of which are much more substantial, so they're sort of almost not quite football field size but, but a little bit larger, um, and they're used for uh, more precise forms of cancer treatment using protons and heavier ions, so particle therapy, as we call it, which has the ability to more precisely target um, the areas that we need and give a higher radiation dose to those areas while not destroying the healthy tissue. Um, along the way, I've also found that one of the interesting things is as our technologies have become more advanced, we also have to consider the equity of access to those technologies. And it wasn't until 2016 when a new collaboration formed and I went to some meetings at CERN um, that I even discovered, I sort of knew in the back of my mind that, of course, like we have these devices in our hospitals and they save lives every day. But if you go to, uh, say, Zimbabwe, they might not. Um, and I got involved in this collaboration a few years ago now that's trying to um, understand uh from both a technology but also a global health perspective, how to improve access to this kind of high-tech cancer treatment technology um, in low- and middle-income countries. Because by 2035, 70% of all cancer cases around the world are going to be in low-, low and middle-income countries, not in high-income countries. Uh, so it's like it's a growing problem. There's a massive shortfall mm. of these devices. Yeah. And even, even if we built one a week, it would take you know 50 years to even make up the current shortfall. So it's it's really it's really an issue, and as we solve, as people are doing amazing work towards solving sort of some of the more transmissible diseases, things like malaria, and trying to intervene on those, and populations get healthier and populations get older, the incidence of cancer actually increases. Uh, so we have to start addressing this issue now, and the technologies that we have just break down more frequently. They're not, you know, they're not designed for those environments, they have to go in hospitals that can be very difficult for people to get to if they live in remote areas. And so one of the things I'm quite passionate about now is trying to understand where, from a technology perspective, uh, we can actually make a difference in trying to make those machines more robust or more accessible or smaller. Um, and so that's been that's been a real yeah. pleasure to be to yeah, sort of put my values together with together yeah. with the technology. Yeah, yeah what, wonderful. And uh, I was struck by, I'm of an age where I've been 
subjected to many different imaging devices in hospitals. Mm. And you point out that some of those imaging devices, like for PET scans and and uh, other kinds of scanning that are in local hospitals, mm. that they use uh, atomic processes, right? Yeah. Yeah, so, um, so CT scans are sort of the culmination of using X-rays. MRI scans, uh, yeah, they absolutely use what's called nuclear magnetic resonance, which I won't go into, but it's a, you know, it's a, it's a wobble on, on, on a nucleus, uh, all driven by high-tech stuff like superconducting magnets that yeah. wouldn't have been possible without these large-scale physics projects. Um, there's a story in the book about the Tevatron in the US and how that led to the industrialization of superconducting wire that, that now we rely on in things like MRI scanners. And then even PET scanners, as you said, this that one is positron emission tomography. They literally use antimatter, annihilating with normal matter, uh, in order to image inside the body. I, I've been in one of those. <laughs> did you have to take? Did you have to take like a sweet liquid, or they, did they feed you a? Oh a yeah, sweet? They, they they gave yeah. me. Uh, uh, I think they injected me with. Or injected uh, you with yeah. something that they could. Uh, you know, atomically scan <laughs> that would right. Show up. So that that's um, usually they use fluorodeoxyglucose or FDG, and the fluoro bit is a fluorine eighteen, um, which is a radioactive element, very low level of radioactivity. I want to assure everyone out there that um, yeah. there's no sort of danger of the radiation that 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 you're that is involved in this process. Um, but that's actually a, a positron emitter, so it emits particles which are the antimatter version of the electron and so wherever that <laughs> wherever that accumulates in the body and it tends to go to areas that have a high high metabolic region so um whenever there's sort of an injury in the in the body all, all the blood rushes there and it's a high highly metabolized area um so it tends to gather there uh and then these positrons come out they find the nearest electron inside you they annihilate uh and send out two photons in opposite directions and then there's a ring of detectors around you that catch those two photons, and that's how it builds up an image. Uh, it's just an amazing. So you're technique. telling me I've been bombarded with antimatter? Yeah. <laughs> For good. For good. Incre yeah, incredible <laughs> to think of. Incredible. So and it, you know. this stuff is there all the time, and you know you go into a hospital, oh. and and some doctor says, "Oh, we're going to send you for this scan," and we we sort of look at the company name on the scanner and we think, oh, this company invented that, they're clever. And you don't attribute it to fundamental research. Um, but actually these things take decades and decades, starting from the very fundamental idea all the way through to, you know, the ability of a company to sell a product that can yeah. then be used in a reliable way in something like a hospital or, or an industry. Um, and I think we sometimes lose sight or, or maybe glamorize even the entrepreneur or the company or that end of things while we forget that they wouldn't have any ideas to work with or to to develop right. into products if yeah. it wasn't for the people working at that more fundamental end. So we do need to value value that research, I think. Definitely. So who should read your book? Oh, everyone. <laughs> <There's>, <laughs> no, I, I, think, I, I agree with that. It would be good for everyone <laughs> to read. I think if you're if you're curious, if you have um, you know, especially if you're someone who likes 
uh, to put stories around sometimes difficult ideas, um, if that helps you, and the human stories as well. That's something that you know we really focused on in developing the narrative of the book. And also, if you just like putting together these seemingly disparate ideas, like the connection between the development of microwaves and the discovery of quarks, uh, and and you know all these. And, and the the first IPO in Silicon Valley, I will note as well, is related to this story. Um, you know, if you like putting these disparate ideas together, then I think the book is for you. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I highly recommend it. Well, Dr. Susie Sheehy, I want to thank you for being my guest, uh, most uh, lively and fascinating guest today on Shrinkwrap Radio. Thank you so much, and thanks for the wonderful questions. Wow, what a privilege to meet my recent guest, Australian physicist Dr. Susie Sheehy. She was surprised when she Googled me before our interview to discover that I'm a psychologist. Why would a psychologist want to interview her, she wondered at the beginning of our Zoom call, before I started recording. Rather than trying to answer that question, I told her all would be revealed in the interview. We did have a fabulous interview, but I never did come out and address her question. Rather, in the course of it, I did share my boyhood fascination with electronics, vacuum tubes, and amateur radio. I didn't think to tell her that I was initially, as an undergraduate, accepted into an electrical engineering program with a full-ride scholarship. That would have been a relevant data point but we were soon immersed into the details of her own life and work. First of all, I was distracted by the fact that she looked so young on camera, almost like a child. No doubt she likely had been a wunderkind in earlier years, but now clearly an adult woman despite her youthful countenance. I had intended to draw her out with lots of questions about her remarkable book, which is a collection of vignettes about the historical figures who drove the past 150 years or so of modern physics. These felt like real insider stories, such that you got the feel of the flesh and blood humans and their struggles to satisfy their own curiosity, thereby driving the field forward toward an increasingly detailed understanding of the physical world, the matter we are made of and surrounded by. But more than a collection of vignettes, we are drawn forward into learning about physics all the way from the discovery of x-rays and how that evolved into today's wonders of cell phones, radiation cancer treatments, and atomic reactors in our local hospitals. I was gobsmacked by some of the details I was learning. For example, the fact that all the solid matter we are surrounded by, including the stuff of our own bodies, are made up of atoms with an up quark, a down quark, and an electron. Wow! And in recent medical imaging tests, for example, PET scan, my body was being bombarded by antimatter. 
As astounding as these details are, I'm inclined to believe her. After all, she is an associate professor with her own labs at Oxford University and the University of Melbourne. And what does her work consist of? She's currently focused on developing new particle accelerators for applications in medicine. Particle accelerators? I thought those were huge devices covering miles, such as the CERN one near Geneva, Switzerland, and the Stanford Accelerator near San Mateo, California. She builds her own particle accelerators that are around three feet long. <laughs> to top it off, she's working to bring down the costs of these quantum-based diagnostic and treatment tools so they can be affordable for third world nations and remote under-resourced regions all over the globe. This remarkable career was kicked off by what the tender-minded among us might call a peak experience or transcendent experience when she was an undergraduate on a field trip in the Australian outback. Sleeping outdoors, absent all light pollution, looking up at the Milky Way from that southern hemisphere perspective, she felt total awe and connection with it all and a calling to find a way to make a difference. Hers is a very readable and enlightening book, which I highly recommend to one and all. The title is The Matter of Everything, How Curiosity, Physics, and Improbable Experiments Changed the World, by Susie Sheehy. Hello, Dr. Dave. My name is Ellie. I am a registered dietitian in Philadelphia. I've been listening to Shrinkwrap Radio for a long time now. I used to also enjoy your Wise Counsel podcast. I've always been fascinated by psychology and was delighted when I found out about your podcast about a decade ago. I have donated and will continue to donate to thank you. Also, as an appreciation for the immense volume of quality interviews that you have put out there, and it's all for free. I have learned so much from you over the years and hope that you continue doing what you're doing for several more decades. Thank you, Ellie, a dietitian, no less. It's wonderful to discover that I have such a diverse audience. Thank you as well for your own generosity. And of course, thank you to all our other monthly supporters. Once again, time to shrink wrap it up. Thank you to Australian experimental physicist Susie Sheehy for taking us into the vast world of physics and subatomic particles and so much more. Next week, my guest will be philosopher Timothy Shaw on trauma and moral injury. Dr. Shaw is the director of the Great Philosophical Problems Think Tank. He has a Ph.D. in moral injury and a research master's investigating the implications of just war theory. I hope you'll join us for what I'm sure will be a fascinating discussion. Meanwhile, this is Dr. Dave reminding you to be kind to yourselves, others, and our precious Earth.
You've been shrink-wrapped by Dr. Dave. All the psychology you need to know, and just enough to make you dangerous.